chapter 25, verse 1. Now three days after Festus arrived in the providence, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So the chief priests and the most prominent men of Jew, the Jews brought formal charges against Paul to him, requesting him to do them a favor against Paul. They urged Festus to summon him and Jerusalem, planning an ambush to kill him along the way. And then Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, Let your leaders go down there with me, and if this man has done anything wrong, they may bring charges against him. So they thought with Festus they can easily manipulate him, but Festus at least knows Roman law well enough. He may not be, um, he may be a novice on the interplays between the Jewish and Christian Roman cultures. He may not understand what's really going on politically with the Jews, but he does know Roman law. There's no way you become a procurator or a governor without knowing Rome. But it also shows he's completely ignorant of what the Jews actually have against Paul, why he's really and truly in Caesarea. But there's also implication that he hasn't even gotten to Caesarea yet to even hear the charges. Basically, he hasn't read the court case and he hasn't read the FBI files, so to speak. So he doesn't even know. Basically says, look, if you want to deal with this, you can come on up. Everybody in the Roman Empire who had any connection to the Jews had kind of a love-hate relationship with them. They hated them because they were absolutely annoying when it came to their monotheism and how quickly they could just rebel and get angry and make things difficult for you as a politician who would just like to eat, drink, and be merry. But at the same time, they kind of really desperately wanted the Jews to like them because the more the Jews liked them, the less the Jews would rebel and the less they would have to deal with it and the more they could just eat, drink, and be merry. Weird thing. So Festus, we don't know how he really felt about them, the Jews, but we do know like, hey, like me so I can just do my thing. We don't know much about him. There's not much about him before he comes into power over Jerusalem. He dies within two years, which means there's very little written about him, why he ruled in order to get an idea of what he was like, although he seemed to be moderate, not really too harsh, not really too laid back. He was wise, he was honest, and he seemed to be more able, more capable than Felix um, as far as the governors did go. He didn't intentionally antagonize anybody to cause revolts. And he was not responsible for the rebellion of 70 AD. That would still happen because of Felix's involvement for many years. But Festus did not contribute to that in any kind of a way. He also dealt very quickly at removing the Jewish assassins. When he came into power, most of the procurators just allowed them or didn't know how to deal with them or how to find them. But when Festus came into power, he very quickly rooted out the Jewish assassins and begin to deal with them. Now, there would always be renewed recruits coming in all the time, and they would increase in incredible numbers by 135 AD, but Festus was long and dead and gone by then. But he deal, did deal with the assassins. You have to realize that both the Jews and the Romans did not like the Jewish assassins, the zealots, because they caused problems for everybody. For Rome, it was like your rebellion. We had to crucify you and put you down and make you a point. For the Jews, it was more like when Rome gets angry at you, it's like you're kicking the hornet's nest and we get stung as a result as too. So nobody liked He was also very ignorant of what is exactly being brought against Paul as far as the charges. Verse 6, After Festus has stayed, 
no more than eight days, eight or ten days among them. He went down to Caesarea, and the next day he sat on the judgment seat and ordered Paul to be brought. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges that they were not able to prove. Once again, that goes all the way back to two years ago. The people from Asia who actually brought these charges to begin with were now gone, and therefore there were no there were no witnesses and no accusers. Therefore, nothing could really be truly proved in any kind of a way. Paul said to his defense, I have committed no offense against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, asked Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and be tried before me there on these charges? Paul replied, I am standing before Caesar's judgment seat where I should be tried. I have done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you also know very well. It's hard to know what exactly Festus meant by, will you be willing to go down to Jerusalem and be tried by the Jews? Obviously, we know his motivation. He wants them to like him as he's coming to power. If I can get them to like me right at the bat, maybe I can have a very smooth rule here, and they will do other things. But what does he mean by be tried in Jerusalem? It could be that he was hinting that he would hand them completely over to the Sanhedrin, let the Sanhedrin completely take control of the trial, and Paul would be right back where he started from the very beginning, and most likely Festus would be completely ignorant to even know how to yank him back out again, unless the, the, the tribune stepped in again as well. Or it could mean that he just wanted a different scenery. Would you be willing to go down there where all the Jews are? Maybe some of the Jews can explain to me the exact details of what's going on, how this all works. But I would still be the person who heard the trial and, and gave the verdict and all that kind of stuff. That seems to be what's hinted in the words here, but this is also an English translation, and the, it gets polished over a lot more than what it was in the Greek, and we don't really know what is implied. It seems unlikely that he's saying, I'm going to hand you completely over to the Jews, but Paul gets really defensive and angry. The, the, the response that the Tony has is like, heck no. Like, we are in Caesarea. This is a Roman thing. I'm a Roman citizen. You are a Roman. This is a Roman thing. And so he seems to be very annoyed and very offended by this offer. So I don't know whether Paul misunderstood it. He was reading between the lines and picked up something that we don't know. But either way, Paul is not liking what's happening here. Verse 11, if I then am in the wrong and have done anything that deserves death, I am not trying to escape dying. But if not, one of the other charges against me is true. No one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then after conferring with the council, Festus replied, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Now what Paul is basically saying, like, if I'm really truly guilty of what they're charging me against, I'm a Jew. I respect the Roman, the, the Jewish law, the, well, the Mosaic law. I deserve to, I will die. I'm not afraid of dying. If I truly have wronged the Mosaic law, then I will answer to it. But I'm not. I haven't done anything, things, so I appeal to Caesar. Now at this point, he has every right as a Roman citizen to say, I'm going to stand before Caesar himself, and Caesar himself will be my judge, nobody else. As a Roman citizen, not only does he have that right, th this is when you're desperate. This is when you're desperate. 
most people don't want to make you, you you have to pay for these expenses yourself so this entire he has to get on the boat he has to sail across the seas obviously some of you have read this awfully all of you have read this it does not go well for them on the seas the Mediterranean is known for being violent and he knows this and he knows it's going to be expensive to pay your own um, boat ticket all the way you have to pay for your own food all that kind of stuff and this is a big deal he really at this point he's desperate and he realizes that things are not going well here he also probably has come to realize that he has lost his audience whatever jews are left here that might hear his court cases and stuff they're not interested in the gospel anymore the province the procurators and the governors and the roman officials here everybody who's heard and wants to respond has heard and responds everybody who has heard and hasn't responded probably will not respond and he realizes that there's no point and God came to him and said you will go to the Rome and so this is an opportunity to head up there and move that way it has become clear that being tried by the providential governor brought long delays with political games games the Jews seeing Rome as intrusive and their affairs did not and not doing what they wanted, had and were likely to take matters into their own hands. There may have been no need for an appeal if one had a good governor. Clearly, Paul did not trust him. Though Paul's appeal would cost a lot financially to get to Rome, he had been promised by Jesus that he would testify before the Roman emperor. One might think of it as an unwise for Paul to appeal to Caesar, when Caesar at this time was the infamous and psychotic Nero. However, Nero was not psychotic yet. That was a later development. Nero was still in the early years of his reign, and he was still showing signs of sanity, and the injustices that he became known for were not even anywhere hinted or any way present in any kind of way. And he was still under the tutelage of the great Roman philosopher, the Stoic, Stoic Seneca. And he was helped along by the prefect of the Praetorian Guard, Aphronius Burroughs. So he was in the early days, no sense of insanity, no weird things, and he was under the tutelage of two highly respected men who believed that wisdom, as a Stoic, obviously, Seneca, uh, Stoic believed that wisdom ruled and that and you should be gentle and kind and, and see all the things. And so Nero had no reputation. Nobody saw what was going to eventually come. This is not unwise of Paul. Later years... Yeah, that would be kind of foolish. But now, no, not so much. Tanhill says this, The narrator shows unusual interest in Felix and Festus. They are complex characters with conflicting tendencies. Felix is attracted to Paul and his message, yet seeks a bribe and leaves, and leaves Paul in prison to appease Paul's enemies. Festus presents a favorable image of himself to the public, but his handling of Paul's case is tainted with favoritism. Neither one is willing to offend the high priests and the elders by releasing Paul. The narrator's characterization of the Roman governors contributes to a portrait of Paul as one caught in a web of self-interested maneuvers by people who vie for support within the political jungle. However, Paul is not just a helpless victim. As opportunity comes, he continues to bear witnesses, witness to the Lord. Although Paul continues to be denied justice and freedom, the saving purpose of God still has use for his resourcefulness and faithful prisoner. This is important because I can't think of any worse place to be, culturally speaking, 
than between two political powerful groups that are opposed to each other who are just simply using you as a pawn to manipulate you for their own self-interest purpose. That, that's like political hell. That's, that's social hell in a lot of ways. And Paul has no power except you can't really beat me and flog me and, and try me without evidence and I'm going to appeal to Caesar. But other than that, he has no power. So he's largely helpless. And even then, he's just moving up the ranks and with more politically powerful people who like maneuvering even more people around for their own gain. So it doesn't mean that anything can get any better there. Yet, Paul's not rebelling. Paul's not slandering anybody. Paul is not writing manifestos against the government. Uh, he, that is not what he does. He just simply entrusts himself into the hands of Yahweh and preaches the gospel when he has the opportunity. Is his life happy-go-lucky and comfortable? No. But is God using him? Yes. And is God obviously in control and going to keep him moving to Rome like he promised? Yes. And there, there, there are great lessons here as we deal with our own governments and our own red tape, if you ever enter into that or have been in that or in that now, that there's simply like, we're in a culture right now where everybody likes to yell and scream and puke their emotions and their views on everybody in social media and cancel left and right. And we're in a time and period where the government loves getting everybody to hate each other, everybody. There's a political movement to make everybody think that everybody's a racist, all Democrats are child eaters, and all Republicans are warmongers who want to throw us into a giant destructive war, and, and, and this group hates that, and that, 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 because the more we're divided, the more we're hateful, the less likely we're going to have peace, the less likely we're going to experience any kind of contentment or satisfaction, the less likely we can stop powerful people from doing bad things. And this is what Paul's not falling into. This is what Paul's not falling into. He is trusting in God. He's trusting in the character that Christ has laid out before him. And he is submitting to the Holy Spirit in order to live that character out to the best of his ability. And let governments take care of governments and let God take care of them. All throughout the Bible, we have gone through pretty much almost every narrative book so far except for Revelation. And in every single time we see people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Joseph, and, and, and Jesus himself coming up, a up against corrupt governments, it's always a peaceful protest through their righteous behavior and a gospel presentation. That is what we see over and over and over again. And they just hand themselves over into the hands of God. And this is what Paul's doing. And this is the point that is being made. And yes, does he play the cards that he has when he has them? Yes. But it's always polite. It's always just. And it's never done in a manipulative kind of way. It's just like, okay, nothing's happening here. I'll do what I can and trust God that he'll make it all. Because even then, he's still throwing himself into the hands of all these people as they get in the ship in a bad time to sail across the ocean. Chapter 25, verse 13. After several days had passed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. And while they were staying there many days, Festus explained to Paul's, Paul's case to the king, 
to get his opinion, saying, There is a man left here as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jewish Jews informed me about him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of Rome to hand over anyone before the accused had met his accusers face to face and had been given an opportunity to make a defense against the accusation. So after they came back here with me, I did not postpone the case. But the next day I sat on the judgment seat and ordered the man to be brought. Marcus Julius Agrippa II is the king. Now remember, we have a Roman procurator who's 100% Rome, Roman and represents Roman interests. At the same time, ruling over Israel is always the king. And the king has been a long line of Herods because they do a pretty good job of handling things in Israel and they understand Jew- Judaism well. Herod himself, the first Herod, of the, the opening of Matthew in the Gospels, who was exterminating the babies. And you're like, that's not handling well. Well, yeah, he has moments. Um, but he did handle a lot of other things well, politically maneuvering that kind of stuff. He was part a descendant of Esau, um, Edom, and part Jewish. And so he felt like he understood both worlds well, um, being of the secular world and being of the, the sacred world of the Jews as well. He was the son of Herod Agrippa I, the last Herod we ran into earlier in the book of Acts and chapter 12. He was the great-grandson of Herod the Great of Matthew chapter 2, and grown up in Rome and was a favorite of Emperor Claudius. The Herods always did a really good job of literally becoming pen pals with whoever Caesar was at that time. That's how Herod the Great of Matthew chapter 2 got into power by basically becoming Octavian, later renamed Augustus, pen pal, like literally. And then ever since then, I don't know if every hair was like, now son, you're 10 years old and you can write really well now. We're going to start a pen pal relationship with whoever is in power so that we can keep this going. But they were always really good at just staying on Caesar's good side so that when anything blew up politically in Israel, Caesar was always likely to say, well, the Herods do a good job. And, and, and they had their moments, but overall, they weren't nice people. They weren't good. They could sometimes stir the Jews up just so they can say, ooh, now I get to kill them. But they always knew how to do it just right, and just little enough, and how to put down Jewish rebellions that they didn't cause quickly enough that Rome was like, yeah, I would like this steak to be cooked a little bit more, but overall, I'm okay with this. Because finding somebody else who can do this even better, good luck with that. And we saw that with Felix and Pilate and other people. So they were good enough just to keep it going. Now, they were still sadistic and moral, ungodly people who had other issues and problems, that kind of stuff. But this final Herod, out of all the Herods, would bring an end to the line, so to speak, was considered the best of them all. Um, they, he seemed to be more even keeled. The Jews even liked him really well. There was one other Herod that they liked, and that was Philip, but he never makes it into the Bible in any kind of way because he ruled a different part of Israel. But he was the Herod that they actually liked, and Luke even puts him in a favorable light. doesn't say really anything negative about him. In fact, Luke doesn't ever call him Herod. He's the only Herod that's not called Herod in the Bible, which might be a subtle way of saying He's not a Herod. 
and the way that he acts and the way that he treats people and that kind of stuff. Not what we would typically think of. And so he's often seen as a favorable light in the book of Acts. Ephesus is like, yes, you're here. Let's talk to you. Kind of like, I'm going to want to hand everything over to you and allow you to deal with this. Herod was there with his sister Bernice. This is not his wife. Bernice had married her uncle. Not that the family is afraid of incest, but the, he, she had married her uncle, the former king of Chalice. But when he died in 48 AD, she moved in with her brother Agrippa, which led to rumors of incestuous relationships. Because previous Herods were known for incestuous relationships, she did have one with her uncle, so everybody just assumed, well, if you're living with your brother and you're both grown adults and he's not married, then there must be incest going on. However, from what we can tell, which is not a lot, there doesn't seem to be in that. Usually it becomes very clear. They're not good at hiding this stuff, and they don't really care enough to hide it. So there doesn't seem to be that true of a case. Eventually she would remarry, some guy that she didn't really like, um, but just to bring it into the rumors, just to bring it into the rumors. So that's why she's here. Um, she often went around with her brother on many occasions, and she's here to hear this out. Festus brought the case to Agrippa. Few things are happening here. First, Festus had to approve of Paul's appeal to Caesar, but he also did not fully understand the charges and so had nothing definitive to report to Caesar about why Paul was being sent to him. So one of the things that Festus is going to do is going to write up a detailed report of why this guy is being sent all the way across the Roman Empire in order to stand before Caesar, who has plenty of other things to do, than hear some Jimmy Joe Jew down the streets dispute with somebody in a crack of the world that nobody cares about, except for just that controls the trade, and that's it. But he doesn't fully understand it. He doesn't get the politics of the Jews. He doesn't get why, why, why defiling the temple and violating the Mosaic law would be that big of a deal. He doesn't get any of this stuff. Herod would. By sending this to Herod, Herod can give him a really good understanding of what is going on. And maybe in a way like, I could probably just have somebody in the background dictating what Herod is saying and then polish it up and put my name on it kind of a thing so that he won't look bad before Caesar, he won't look ignorant and incompetent in any kind of way. But the other thing that's going on is if he gets Herod Agrippa, if he gets Agrippa to say, oh yeah, this is what's going on, and yeah, you should send him to Caesar, and yeah, then he has a stamp and the approval of a really trusted person of Caesar. And so he can say like, oh, and don't take my word for it. This is the idea that he's hoping to accomplish. So this works out for well for him. As he begins to explain everything to Agrippa, first Festus blamed Felix. The first thing you do is just throw the previous politicians under the bus. Okay, it's not my fault. Felix screwed it all up. This guy's been waiting around for two years. I literally just got here a couple months ago. I am dealing with this person. And the second thing he do is he, um, he accused the Jews of being incompetent. They're the one bringing up these charges. They have no accusers. Nothing seems to be definitively written down. They don't even seem to know exactly what they're saying. Um, nothing that they're saying seems to fit into Roman law in any kind of way. So that's their incompetence. Like, why would they bring non-Roman charges against me as a Roman person? That kind of stuff. So he blames the Jews for being basically incompetent. The other thing he does is he puts himself in a favorable light. I dealt with this quickly. No delay. 
I'm not slowing down the political and courtroom system and that kind of stuff. And neither he nor were, however, in the end, neither he nor Festus Felix is actually brave enough to just dismiss it. He's got to know enough to know that this should just be dismissed. And so even though he's putting himself in the favorable light, nobody's doing what needs to be done and what Roman politically and justice should have been done. There's no reason for any of this to be here. Verse 18, when his accusers stood up, they did not charge him with any of the evil deeds I have suspected. Rather, they have several points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a man named Jesus who was dead, whom Paul claimed to be alive. Because this just, that statement right there just shows his absolute ignorance of what has been going on for the last couple of decades. Because I was at the loss of how I could investigate these matters, I asked if he were willing to go to Jerusalem and be tried there on these charges. But when Paul appealed to be kept in custody, appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of his majesty the emperor, I ordered him to be kept under guard, and I could send him to Caesar. Agrippa said to Festus, I would also like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow he replied, you will hear him. Once again, now Paul has new blood in the audience that he can begin to speak to here. Verse 23. So the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience hall, along with the senior military officers and the prominent men of the city. And when Festus gave the order, Paul was brought in. Then Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present here with us, you see this man about whom the entire Jewish population petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting loudly that he ought not to live any longer. But I have found that he had done nothing that deserved death, and when he appealed to his majesty the emperor, I decided to send him. But I have nothing definitive to write to my lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you, and all especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after this preliminary hearing I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable to me to send a prisoner without clearly indicating the charges against, my, against him. 